Welcome to the Combat and Classics Podcast. I'm Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. I'm Lise Van Boxel in Santa Fe. Oh, sorry, I guess I've moved. I'm now in Annapolis, St. John's <laughs> College. <laughs> and I'm Jeff Black, and I've moved too. I'm back in Annapolis, Maryland at St. John's College as well. We're back, guys. Uh, thank you, listeners. We, t- we, we took a little hiatus, uh, but we're back, and we're going to be doing another close read. Uh, we're going to be working through today the prologue of Thus Spoke Zarathustra by old Fred Nietzsche. Um, so we're not going to start with a with an opening question or an overview. Uh, we're just going to get into the close read, and um, I'll be doing that because I only have value in reading and making sure everybody's mics work. <laughs> uh, and, and they do. <laughs> and they do. So mission complete so and far. And Moonlight is a very Shakespeare actor, et cetera. Oh, moonlighting! Yeah, yeah I, I, I'm a spear holder in any, in any shows. Um, but uh, yeah, so we're just doing another close read, similar to our old Aristotle uh, shows, which you can still download. Um, you can also support us if you go to combatandclassics.org. We do have a donation button at the bottom, so if you'd like to hear more content from Combat and Classics, you can donate there. But uh, gratuitous commercialism complete. Let's get to a reading. So, prologue. Thus spoke Zarathustra. When Zarathustra was 30 years old, he left his home and the lake of his home and went into the mountains. Here he enjoyed his spirit and his solitude, and for 10 years did not tire of it. But at last a change came over his heart, and one morning he rose with the dawn, stepped before the sun, and spoke to it thus, You great star, what would your happiness be had? You, not those for whom you shine. For ten years you have climbed to my cave. You have tired of your light and of the journey, had it not been for me and my eagle and my serpent. But we waited for you every morning, took your overflow from you, and blessed you for it. Behold, I am weary of my wisdom, like a bee that has gathered too much honey. I need hands outstretched to receive it. I would give away and distribute until the wise among men find joy once again in their folly and the poor in their riches. For that I must descend to the depths as you do in the evening when you go behind the sea and still bring light to the underworld, you overrich star. Like you, I must go under, go down, as is said by man, to whom I want to descend. So bless me then, you quiet eye that can look even upon an all too great happiness without envy. Bless the cup that wants to overflow, that the water may flow from it golden and carry everywhere reflection of your delight. Behold, this cup wants to become empty again, and Zarathustra wants to become man again. Thus, Zarathustra began to go under. And if we had great editing skills, this is where I would put in... um, I come from the land down under, or if we had the music rights. We have to begin that way. Um. Talk to our, our sound editor. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff, before the podcast, we, we just noted how um, thick this particular work is with um, poetic language, but imagery. Maybe we could just start at the top and go, th- and grow through it. I guess I should also add it's thick with allusions to other works. Um, and yeah, in particular, right. yeah, particular this... Um, the 30 years old, uh, as far as I understand it, Zoroaster um, is said to have had his illumination at age 30. So I think that that might be the reason, or at least one of the reasons for that choice. Um, 
Yeah, I think that's right. There's also, I think, a tradition in the interpretation of the Christian scriptures. I don't know if this is ever um, explicitly said, but it's um, uh, that Jesus is 30 years of age when the Holy Spirit first comes on him. Yes. Right? And so it looks like, on the one hand, uh, it looks like we have a, a central figure who is uh, layered out of maybe several central figures, one uh, Zoroaster, uh, and the other would be Jesus. Yeah. And so I, I've always read this as um, Zora, Zarathustra is all of these people. So there's a kind of incarnation happening. I think we'll see as we move ahead. He's, he's done something like this before and really um, exhausted himself, extinguished himself in a process uh, in his interrelations with other human beings. And then there's a withdrawal to this mountain where he rejuvenates uh, or regenerates. And this seems to be what's what's happening here. He's been up there for some period of time and uh, does not tire of this withdrawal into solitude. He's enjoying his mind or spirit. He's enjoying his solitude. But then one morning it looks like he's sufficiently restored that he feels the need to overflow again. There's a sort of impulse to discharge. Yeah, that seems right to me. And I guess I'd underline that phrase, there was a change in his heart, which I think I heard in Brian's version as well, right? That this feeling the need uh, originates in the heart. So it's not uh, originally or primarily a thought that he had, right? But there's there's some pressure maybe that he's uh, feeling the need to relieve, yeah. Yeah, and this statement, um, Zarathustra, or Zar- yeah, Zarathustra to the sun, you great star, what would your happiness be had you not those for whom you shine? That might strike um, readers of, uh, say, Plato, in particular, Plato's Socrates, um, as somewhat surprising because at, at least a certain reading of Plato's Socrates' teachings suggests that um, someone who is um, godlike, or, beca- or as one becomes more godlike, one doesn't need other people. One has a sort of self-sufficiency. And that is not what Nietzsche's sketching via Zarathustra here, right? He This question, what would your happiness be had you not those for whom you shine? This feeling of I have to discharge now on the part of Zarathustra, I have to go down to men, um, suggests there's, there's uh, an, a very intimate connection between this hero, who I take as sort of a model human, human being or being in, in some way, and other human beings, it, it's one ought not to simply withdraw uh, into um, solitude for prolonged periods of time and sort of presume that you have no connection to other other human beings at all. There's a there's a necessary connection. So it sounds like we're taking that um, question. In, in my version, it's a kind of exclamation. So it's a rhetorical question, right? A question that uh, Zarathustra already knows the answer to to imply that um, without those for whom the great star, for whom the sun shines, his happiness would be lesser. I think that's and right, yeah. The sun would be less happy. Uh, is there anything more that we can say about that at this point? Um, you know, why it would be that uh, the happiness of a full or overfull human being might be less were there not recipients? Because so far, I think we've got a kind of mechanical image of what's going on with Zarathustra, right? He's somehow accumulating something inside of himself, and eventually he reaches a limit, right? And then it's got to come out. But this is, this is a slightly different image, isn't it? That uh, 
the growth of happiness, um, happiness could grow even further, maybe we would say, if when things are expressed, they're received by someone. Yes, and I guess this is obviously switching metaphors, but if we move on from that statement where he, uh, Zarathustra elaborates on that claim to the sun, he says, for 10 years you have climbed to my cave. You would have tired of your light and of the journey had it not been for my eagle and my serpent. But we waited for you every morning, took your overflow from you, and blessed you for it. Behold, I'm weary of my wisdom like a bee that has gathered too much honey. I need hands outstretched to receive it. So there's a move from the sun to the to the honeybee. Um, but the claim explicitly there is, I've, I've made honey and now I need um, hands to... To, to whom I can give this this gift, this golden gift, uh, obviously the honey being equi- or analogous to the sunlight. Um. Yeah, that makes some sense to me. Is there even another uh, step in there between the two parts of what you read where the first thing is it looks like um, what he needs is a, is a blessing in return, right? Uh, that's what the sun got in return. But the second formulation is... Um, I need uh, people who need, people whose hands are outstretched, mm-hmm. right? So maybe uh, the blessing just indicates the need, right? You wouldn't bless for a gift that you didn't already have some need for. But it does help a little bit that, um, uh, you know, the, the happiness of the independent being or the potentially independent being uh, is actually increased with the thought that there are other beings that need that being. Yes, and uh, if we depending on how much of this book we do, I think this image becomes becomes complicated a bit a bit later on in a section called Night Song for those who want to read it regardless of whether we get there or not. But if we, <laughs> if, if we stick to this section, there's another um, difference between this and a sort of classical notion of, of love that I think is worth punctuating and sometimes causes some difficulty. So um, we can spend as much time on it as, as we need to. But um, in some of the Platonic dialogues, um, for instance, the symposium, there's a indication that gods or beings we regard as most um, as best. I'll just use that the broadest term I can. Highest, best. Um, don't love because love indicates a lack, um, and um, and a lack is a weakness. And gods don't have that. They're perfect. They're which is, they're complete in some. They're complete in all ways. Um, Nietzsche doesn't have that view of love. I think he he um, is influenced by the Christian notion of love, but he doesn't go quite the same direction as as the Christian notion of love as he understands it. And specifically, he thinks um, the distinction to be made is whether you have vital paucity, your vital impotence, or vital potency. Um, and love can only be for him. Uh, the effect of vital potency and overflow. So he objects to the notion, implicitly objects to the notion that one properly understands love as a lacking. He says, no, that it it can be painful to have an overflowing vitality because you need to discharge it somewhere, but one one really ought not to uh, confuse that with vital paucity where there's sort of a hole in you <laughs> that has to be filled by somebody else. So it's a different relation. So he, so there's a sort of redemption of the notion of love from thinking, well, it only comes of 
of weakness when one starts to think, well, there might be different types of vulnerability and maybe it's too crude to say uh, this overflowing richness is is a weakness. It's a little crude. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that helps with uh, the next sentence where Zarathustra says he'd like to bestow and distribute and then he gives two uh, criteria for what he hopes to achieve in that distribution and uh, he divides the um, the people whose hands are outstretched into the wise and the poor right and the wise are supposed to become once again glad of their folly and the poor once again uh, glad of their riches right so I suppose the thought is that um, uh, neither of these groups are lovers in the uh, precise sense that you just laid out, right? Neither of them is capable of overflow. They both have a kind of need, um, and that need is uh, will be satisfied when they don't worry about their folly and they think that they're rich, if I can yes. put it that way. Yeah. yeah. Can I just add that um, I, I'm wondering about, you know, all, all will be revealed in time, but I'm wondering about the concept of dude's been in his cave for 10 years and has kind of figured it all out <clears throat> without talking to anybody. Um, like I, I question that as um, like, why are we starting there and what's the basis of that start? Cause it's, it's kind of anti-dialectical, right? It's the anti-Socrates because I don't know if you get Socrates without the conversations that happen in Athens. So without an Athens, you don't get a Socrates potentially. Not that he got it right or anything like that, but that just the idea of philosophy is that, interacting with people and talking through it. Um, and we, there's, we'll get to this in part two, but in part two, I feel like as soon as the dialectic happens, he kind of changes his mind a little bit. Um, so he's kind of positing. He's like, I got this figured out at some level. He's got something he needs to share. Maybe it's not him figuring out, but then as soon as he actually interacts with the first person, he kind of changes his mind. So I don't know. That just stood out to me as, you haven't been doing any dialectic. You haven't been talking to anybody. <clears throat> you think you got it figured out. Descend the mountain. First dude you talk to, you're like, he says A. Dude says something, and then he kind of changes A to B as as his starting point. So I just thought that was interesting um, as we kind of move through this. Yeah, I guess, um, I mean, obviously people disagree about this, but the way I read, let me work first from Plato, Socrates, and then to here, or I guess Xenophon, Socrates also, I don't see them doing... I mean, I think the image of the honeybee that Nietzsche uses is actually pretty apt for what they are doing also. I think the most serious um, philosophic work actually does happen in solitude. I think I'm, I'm sure Nietzsche thinks that. Um, so I think that going out talking to people is like honey gathering. The people are like flowers. The conversation, you, know, you gather things, but then there's a removal to reflect on what happened or to think about what happened, and that's sort of where the honey making occurs. Um, in this image we have here, um, something very interesting happens that recalls the sun image. I take it there's also a similar type of going out like a bee to flowers in your interactions with other human beings. But Nietzsche really emphasizes the need for solitude because in that solitude, at least for the, for the powerful human being, you can um, listen to the non-rational or less rational um, parts of oneself. What is not so conscious in oneself bubbles up into the conscious and one's constantly drawing on one's own psyche. So it's um, that I think is 
is how Zarathustra's restored himself. So withdrawal, and he, he goes on to say where, where we stopped, um, using the sun image, he indicates that he is now going to go down like the sun goes down every night. So there's a sort of circularity in himself. And I think as the book progresses, that's also a move from you know, your daily con consciousness, self-awareness, self-consciousness, um, into a sort of quiet, solitary moment where you actually go down into parts of yourself that were not so self-conscious. And then you learn about yourself, reorder yourself, and generate values out of yourself, which is not as absolutely solitary as it might sound, since for him we are social beings. So it's not like you simply do something wildly idiosyncratic. Mm -hmm. But I did, I did like uh, Brian's suggestion that Zarathustra's solitude is not uh, dialectical. Right? So there's some chance that he was speaking to his animals or that he regularly spoke to the sun or he uh, regularly spoke to his heart. But I think uh, I'd at least be open to the interpretation, and maybe it's a better one, that, uh, that he was largely silent even in all of those respects for his 10 years, right? Drawing on his internal resources in some non-conversational, uh, non-dialectical way, right? Yes. And so that probably does mean that when he um, emerges from that activity, he's going to be um, not as apt as he might have been if he had been dealing with human beings conversationally. He might have some things to learn in a kind of um, restricted way, how to communicate with them again. Yeah, and I think that's, that's absolutely true. I guess, I guess the solitude and not talking to people is necessary. So if, if he hadn't withdrawn, I think he would just have been spent. Um, but I agree yeah, that there's, it's not dialectical at this point. It does become dialectical later in the book. In fact, I'd say that's the major drama is that we see a, hum a being that makes a mistake and is learning even what he's trying to do. But then it's, it's like he's looking for somebody else to do the thing he needs to be done. And over the course of the book, starts to realize that he's the guy who has to do it. And then you get this dialectical like, descent into the psyche. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. I guess the other thing that, that Brian's um, reference to Socrates made me think of was the beginning of the Republic, which also very famously begins with this Greek word that means I went down. Um, and with that contrast in mind, one thing that strikes me is that the activities that are separated by going down in the case of Socrates are talking with Glaucon privately and watching a religious um, festival and then being compelled to talk with a group of uh, Glaucon's friends and, and relations uh, in the Piraeus, uh, which he would have wanted to leave. Um, and uh, it looks to me like one of those activities is free and one is compelled, but both of them seem to be happening down. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, here it looks like um, if there's a compulsion, it's a internal and not external. And um, I'm not so uh, clear that I see at this point a distinction between uh, Zarathustra's preferred and non-preferred activities when he is down among human beings. We might get that later, but um, the Socratic example suggests that we should be keeping our eyes open for something like that. Yeah, yeah. There's another thing I just want to th throw into the what was what I was saying formally about um, the difference, the different view of love Nietzsche has, or that there that there could be. Um, you might still 
have a, fe a feeling of a kind of pain even from vital potency as opposed to impotency. Because in co conversations with other friends, um, especially people that spend a lot of time on Plato, I think you know, they're inclined to say, but that's still a, it's still a neediness, right? Because you still feel the pain of wanting to discharge. Um, um, like I said, I don't, I don't deny that, but I do think it's, Nietzsche thinks it's it's a bit crude, and um, the next question one would have to face, or one of the next questions one would have to face um, when speaking with somebody with that position is, well, how would you tell? And that's a sort of a long conversation, I think, but here we get a little bit of insight into how one could tell the difference between vital impotence and vital overflow. Um, when Zarathustra says right after the the sentence you read, Jeff, so bless me then, you quiet eye, that can look even upon an all too great happiness without envy. I think envy is a, is a massively important concept for Nietzsche. Um, and envy is, I think we discussed this in another podcast, but envy is when you see something you believe or know to be beautiful or good, um, and you and you want it, but rather than taking steps to secure it, like a jealous person would do, the envious person seeks to try to destroy it. And and that turn to wanting to destroy is an indicator, a decisive indicator of vital impotence. In other words, you do that because you don't feel potent enough to try to get the good thing. Um, so I think here, when he says, you know, you have happiness without envy, the desire to, say, even in Zarathustra's case, overflow or discharge is devoid of envy, right? It's, um, so it's a sign of, again, a sign of the, the potency, and it has this psychic effect of, of not involving envy. Yeah. That's interesting because it suggests a um, potential problem or a problem that should be anticipated, which is uh, if an all-too-great happiness lacks envy, does that mean that... Um, those who need, right? Those who do feel that that vital uh, lack, they necessarily do feel envy. Yeah. And if so, does that mean that the people for whom you want to bestow your your gifts, right? To whom you want to bestow your gifts, uh, they are necessarily going to envy you, right? That would seem like a, a problem in the relation between giver and recipient that Zarathustra might have to think about and and try to overcome. Yeah, I guess I just want to be open to the possibility that maybe it's not necessary. Um, I mean, what about a human being who, maybe this is just psychically impossible, but I, 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 I need to hear more, where you could see somebody who has a good thing that um, you don't have, or this person without envy doesn't have, and appreciate it um, and just leave it at that. Maybe that's not psychically possible, but I'd like to be open to it, yeah. Well, there's an indication, isn't, isn't there, that Zarathustra and his animals are in that condition with respect to nice. the sun, right? It's not clear yeah. that they need the sun's um, overflow, but they do bless the sun for it. Yeah. Right? I, th I thought you were going to say something else, which I think was also consistent with that observation. The animals don't seem to bless uh, envy Zarathustra, and yet clearly their strengths um, are distinct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which then leads me to wonder, other question, any thoughts about why those animals, snake and eagle, or serpent and eagle? Well, I had that question too, because it comes back again in, in a later part of the prologue. Yeah. But aside from it looks cool, <laughs> as far as imagery, 
I didn't have much. Well, so there's the the snake is New Hampshire. Don't tread on me. The eagle <laughs> is the American Republic. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, but I, I think we, we should probably think, try to think about what those images mean to us just on the face of them. And so I'll venture that um, the eagle seems, it's a, it's a predatory bird. It seems... Um, to be a solitary animal. It seems uh, to fly over everything and look down on everything. Uh, there's a kind of independence or pride maybe that it possesses. And then for me, the snake, the first thing I think about, especially since I was the one who, who dragged Jesus into this, is of course the, the fall, right? The Garden of Eden and the, the temptation or corruption of the, uh, or at least the offering of a questionable choice to uh, Adam and Eve. Yes, and maybe I'll just broaden that a little little bit in this way. I don't think you'd object, Jeff, but uh, eagle pride. I also think Rome, mm. um, but serpent, let me push it even farther back. I think ancient Jew. Mm-hmm. So Jewish Bible, of course, Christian and Old Testament as well, but, but maybe more important, ancient Jew, for who you know, Nietzsche thinks so highly of the ancient Jews. He thinks there's never been a more powerful more vitally potent people. Um, so I wonder whether, and, and, and in addition to that, wise. So you have this combination of, of wisdom, obviously tied up with uh, the Garden of Eden um, and, and pride um, or ancient J- Judaism and Rome. Yeah, let's keep these possibilities alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like those suggestions. And it, uh, if we're going to push, let's maybe uh, push um, another step. So, uh, in other places in Nietzsche, I think we see the star or the sun as an image of a morality. Yes. Right? And uh, certainly that's a platonic uh, image as well, right? Where in the Republic, the idea of the good is, uh, is represented by the sun in the, in the allegory of the cave. Um, so now we have these animals that look like they might represent moralities as well, or cultures or something like that, right? We could say that the Roman imperial culture and the, um, the morality of, of uh, ancient Judaism, something like that, of the Hebrew scriptures. Um, so are they lesser forms? Are they vestigial forms of a morality? Do, do we know why they're animals? Does that, is there anything we can say about that? I think it's prudent. Do we know why they're animals? Yeah. Prudent not to answer that question. <laughs> um. Well, I, I, this is obviously not going to be a complete answer, but we're going to find out shortly, although maybe not in this podcast, that Zarathustra and his animals are contrasted with a hermit who turns out to be a saint, I guess it depends a bit on your translation, who's also retreated into a kind of solitude, but he's hanging out with, what, bears and things? Bears, yeah. Um, <laughs> bears, and he hums. So I, 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 we'll, we'll get there, but I have my, my initial suggestion about that before we get there is the humming is... A bit of a dehumanization because it's there's there's no words. Um, Zarathustra seems to be talking to his animals, um, um, or at least he's not humming. He's talking in this in this first section. Um, so I'd at least say that that the choice of animals is different. Um, yeah, yeah, that that makes some sense to me. I mean, maybe uh, maybe the animals are part of Zarathustra and not part of Zarathustra. They're mm-hmm. his, but they're somewhat independent but they're not full human beings. Mm-hmm. They can talk, though. Yeah. I also like what you did, and we're starting to see the way in which Nietzsche works. Um, the different symbols and metaphors he uses have, can have multiple meanings, but if we go the route of saying, well, the serpent 
yes, um, certainly incorporated into Christianity, but but originally uh, the Jewish Bible, um, ancient Judaism, Eagle, Rome. Um, and then one thinks, well, yes, sun, a morality. Then we get this notion of a cup that wants to overflow. That, for me, does evoke an allusion to Christ. It would take this cup away from me. Um, uh, and yes, as Jeff, you, you pointed out, the, the sun is used by Nietzsche and others as a symbol for morality, but all of it's folded into an overall very natural image, right? So, so what he's looking to, what Zarathustra is looking to for guidance or for a sort of model of behavior is just the way the world is, the natural world is working. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's good. All right. Do we want to push on the two? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Is that good, Lise? Yeah. I was just thinking we, yeah. yes. Forge ahead, high speed, it's two. Forge ahead. All right, prologue part two. Zarathustra descended alone from the mountains, encountering no one. But when he came into the forest, all at once there stood before him an old man who had left his holy cottage to look for roots in the woods, and thus spoke the old man to Zarathustra. No stranger to me is this wanderer. Many years ago he passed this way. Zarathustra he was called, but he has changed. At that time you carried your ashes to the mountains. Would you now carry your fire into the valleys? Do you not fear to be punished as an arsonist? Yes, I recognize Zarathustra. His eyes are pure, and around his mouth there hides no disgust. Does he not walk like a dancer? Zarathustra has changed. Zarathustra has become a child. Zarathustra is an awakened one. What do you now want among the sleepers? You lived in your solitude as in the sea, and the sea carried you. Alas, would you now climb ashore? Alas, would you again drag your own body? Zarathustra answered, I love man. Why, asked the saint, did I go into the forest and the desert? Was it not because I loved man all too much? Now I love God, man I love not. Man is for me too imperfect a thing. Love of man would kill me. Zarathustra answered, Did I speak of love? I bring men a gift. Give them nothing, said the saint. Rather take part of their load and help them to bear it. That will be best for them, if only it does you good. And if you want to give them something, give no more than alms and let them beg for that. No, answered Zarathustra, I give no alms. For that I am not poor enough. The saint laughed at Zarathustra and spoke thus, Then see to it that they accept your treasures. They are suspicious of hermits and do not believe that we come with gifts. Our steps sound too lonely through the streets. And what if at night in their beds they hear a man walk by long before the sun has risen? They probably ask themselves, Where is the thief going? Do not go to man. Stay in the forest. Go rather even to the animals. Why do you not want to be as I am, a bear among bears, a bird among birds? And what is the saint doing in the forest? asked Zarathustra. The saint answered, I make songs and sing them. And when I make songs, I laugh, cry, and hum. Thus I praise God. With singing, crying, laughing, and humming, I praise the God who is my God. But what do you bring us as a gift? When Zarathustra had heard these words, he bade the saint farewell and said, What could I have to give to you? But let me go quickly, lest I take something from you. And thus they separated, the old one and the man, laughing as two boys laugh. But when Zarathustra was alone, he spoke thus to his heart, Could it be possible? 
the old saint in the forest has not yet heard anything of this, that God is dead. So, first, first interlocution. Well, for me, uh, one of the difficult uh, things in this section is understanding exactly what's going on in the conversation between Zarathustra and uh, the old man. Uh, it seems to me, at least initially, like they're not really responding to one another. And so it would help uh, me a little bit to try to get inside that. Uh, apparently, the old man recognizes Zarathustra, that he's seen him before, and he claims that um, Zarathustra was carrying his ashes to the mountains. And uh, one of my inferences from that is that um, Zarathustra had fire earlier. This is a kind of second uh, attempt when Zarathustra is coming down now uh, that uh, might resemble in some respects something that he has done earlier in his life. Um, and that that ran its course, uh, the fire became ashes, the ashes led him uh, to bring them into the mountain, in, into his solitude. Um, so maybe that's the, that's the first observation, is that, that uh, the old man thinks he knows Zarathustra. It's not quite clear that Zarathustra thinks he knows the old man. Yeah, it seems that the old man, the observation is sort of interesting. He carried, Zarathustra carried his ashes into solitude as in the sea, or you lived in solitude as in the sea. And then he says, alas, would you drag your own body? So it seems that Zarathustra, according to the old man, who, by the way, is a saint, I think that would be a better translation, um, thinks Zarathustra has become literally more substantial. It's like it's like he he um I don't know evaporated might not be the right word, but but he literally was burned up and now has sort of reincarnated, if I could put it that way, or become incarnated. Um and then we get what Brian was notice, noting if we if we move into the back and forth, this is I think a, an initially a, a direct response and then it gets as you point out, Jeff, increasingly unclear as to whether and how they're responding. So the saint says, would you again drag your own body? And Zarathustra answered, I love man. So I take it that's not a direct response, but it suggests, yes, I'm going to drag my body because I love man, maybe. But then the saint says, why did I go into the forest and the desert? Was it not because I love man all too much? So it's almost, so immediately the saint I don't know, takes Zarathustra's response as a pot potentially as a kind of rebuke, right? Um, <laughs> that people that love human beings go down to man, and the saint is not doing that. But then he has his defense. Now I, I love God. Man, I love not. Man is for me too imperfect a thing. Love of man would kill me. And then Zarathustra says, did I speak of love? I bring men a gift. Well, yes, you, you just spoke of love, right? So... So it switches from I love man to I bring men a gift. Um, what do we make of that? Is that supposed to be, I guess there are at least two options. Either when he's first, Zarathustra first, that I love man, that was not meant to be an explanation for what he's going down, uh, why he's going down to men, or it was his explanation, but it turns out when he's pressed on it, he. He's not really sure about that as an explanation. In fact, he doesn't really know why he's doing what he's doing. Well, I, I did think that you prepared us pretty well to um, get inside this conversation with your introduction of the, the two possible senses of love and how 
uh, Nietzsche's sense of what love means might be different from, um, say, a Platonist sense, and maybe also a, a, a Christian sense of what love means. But perhaps Zarathustra begins by um, using love in his sense. I love human beings means I want to overflow to human beings. And then the holy man hears the word love and uh, responds to love in his sense. Uh, to love is to lack, and you love what would complete your lack, but human beings are incomplete, therefore they're not lovable. In fact, if you love them, if you long for them, you're, you're longing for death. You're not going to get what you need, right? And then I suppose Zarathustra, is this a moment where Zarathustra kind of learns something? in this narrow sense of learning, in the sense that he gets um, a little bit better at talking to other uh, human beings now. And he says, you know, uh, what did I say of love in my translation? I bring human beings a present, right? I bring them a gift. Yeah, nice. I think that's nice. And, and the gift then would be Zarathustra's maybe effort to punctuate what he means by love. I'm not, look, by love, I don't mean I need a gift. I mean, I'm, I'm bringing one. Um, but then you get this response, give them nothing. Take part of their load. Which I take to be, don't give them anything, alleviate their suffering, help them bear it. Um, and Zarathustra responds, I give no alms. For that, I'm not poor enough. So I think that's consistent with what you just did with the question of love. Jeff, um, but maybe we should just flesh it out here. What does it What does it mean to say I'm not poor enough to give alms? Mm -hmm. Well, I, so I have this suggestion. Um, Zarathustra interprets almsgiving as actions of envy, right? Uh, and maybe the harshest way to say it would be um, giving alms as a way of taking away from the recipient something valuable that they have that you uh, wish they didn't have. You concede it's valuable and you wish they didn't have it. And if I ask myself, well, what gets taken away when you give alms? Um, you take away a, a need that might be helpful, right? In other words, you, um, you turn a human being who uh, understands himself as needy and might be directed in, in, uh, in certain directions that are beneficial, and you say, you don't have to pursue those directions anymore. Here, take what I have, which is taking part of their burden away from them. Yeah, and I think there's a, uh, consistent with that, but but a, a little uglier maybe, um, <clears throat> to give alms as Zarathustra has it here and to say, well, I'm not poor enough for that. I think he's also indicating um, in accordance with the saint's view of love as, as you know, you, you need to give me something. That's what I mean by love, that that the giving of alms here is similarly done out of vital paucity, and it's really an expression of pity. And you, you work on pity a lot, Jeff, but I, I really do mean the ugly version of pity where you're really looking at somebody and you're, and you're saying to that person, um, you can't help yourself, right? And I, and I know that, so I feel sorry for you. So it's actually an assertion of superiority um, that makes the the person that's pitied poorer than they were before, right? Because you deny, you, you indicate that you, I mean, as you put it, they're not able to help themselves. They're not able to improve their lot. So they're just subject to, to your, your pity, which is really about you feeling better about yourself, feeling superior. So I think, I think that's, that's uh, what's at least part of what's going on here. Yeah. 
So when Zarathustra says he's not poor enough, what he's essentially saying is that he has no need to assert his superiority in this harmful or conclusive way yeah. over needy beings. That's right, yeah, yeah. So as I said, to connect the, this type of pity is connected with the notion of love, where love is really about what you want from somebody else as opposed to what you're going to give as a gift. Yeah. I wonder about that line where the hermit compares um, kind of himself and includes Zarathustra in this and the thief in the night that people look at um, hermits or prophets or saints as thieves in the night. I wonder what he's alluding to there. Yeah. Well, so the, um, the hermit is like the man who is going by before the sun has risen, right? Going by in darkness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so th- this might be a, an illusion or a callback to the earlier thought we had about um, the sun as a morality, right? Uh, human beings who seem to be active in areas that are not illuminated by morality or who are not um, behaving in conventionally moral ways. I think that the hermit claims, or the holy man, the saint claims that um, people interpret human beings like that who are active in, in those ways or at those times uh, as um, people who are trying to steal something, as people who lack and who are going to take from you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and again, extending that, that image, um, drawing on what we were doing before, if the sun is, amongst other things, meant to represent a morality, and the section that Brian finished reading uh, Zarathustra announces that famous statement, God is dead. The sun, that is the, the, the Christian morality, the dominant morality, has is is really gone, right? The, the, maybe the, the light of that distant star is still hitting us, but the source of it is is over. And so it's it actually has gone down, that morality, that star. Um, and in the darkness that ensues, a human being who comes to try to give a gift that might fill the void left by the loss of that moral doctrine might be regarded as as, a, as an enemy, even though he's bringing a gift, he's trying to fill what we call sort of nihilistic gaping hole. Um, the people haven't realized yet that, that full darkness is upon them, and so they might still attack because they're still attached to the old morality despite the fact that they no longer have a sufficient grounds to hold up that morality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the holy man is essentially uh, saying that even if it's true that you don't need to pity human beings, what you're going to undertake is dangerous. They won't understand you. They're going to think you're a criminal. Yeah, and that that actually to go back to re- noting before about their their uh, maybe lack of conversation. Um, the saint's response here, when Zarathustra says, I'm not poor enough to give alms, the saint then flips and, and assumes that he is also a gift giver, right? They don't accept our treasures. And then, <laughs> and then he makes the second uh, claim to try to, or, or um, argument to try to prevent Zarathustra going down, which is it's too dangerous, Right. Um, so that's interesting. He's trying to make excuses, right? Um, yeah, yeah, that's very nice because uh, the, the, the previous part of the saint's argument implies that he has no gifts to give, right? He's, he's a lacking human being rather than one who's overflowing. Yeah. 
And then he ends by saying, well, you know, I, I hang out with God, right? So I don't love human <laughs> beings. The human beings aren't quite good enough for me to love, and they, they exhaust me, and I'm, I'm afraid. Um, and so I do this laughing, crying, humming, and I praise God. And then, but, but what do you bring me as a gift, Zarathustra? What do you, us, <laughs> I guess it's, uh, what do you bring us as a gift? And then Zarathustra, again, I think is learning um, what this human being is or who this human being is. And it says, when Zarathustra heard these words, he bade the saint farewell and said, what could I have to give you? <laughs> I think that's flattery um, in a way, but it's also true that he, Zarathustra's gift is not going to benefit this person. And then he says, but let me leave before I take something away from you. I think that's something like your faith. Right? Mm -hmm. you, you still haven't heard God is dead. And that's just fine that you can stay here and live like, like this. If you haven't heard that, okay. Um, so he's not going to insist that the, the hermit, you know, you, you must face this truth as I understand it, that God is dead. He doesn't, that's not who Zarathustra is. Right. Yeah, I guess the uh, precise reason, I mean, this makes a lot of sense to me, the precise reason that Zarathustra has nothing to give, it's not that he's just being modest or something like that, is that the saint has just confessed that he's not really a human being. And Zarathustra has gifts for humans. Right? So the saint is, uh, uh, is assimilating himself to uh, animals, and that seems to be his um, reaction to his lack, um, or as he would have it, his reaction to the dangerousness of giving his gifts to other human beings. Um, yeah, he's just uh, uh, laughing and weeping, and in my translation, growling with the bears. Yeah, although there is this, let's see if we can fold this in. Um... So I'm at least, I'm certainly on board with the notion that the Zarathustra's gift is not suitable for the priest. But then, then he says, you know, but let me go quickly lest I take something from you. And thus they separated, the old one and the man, laughing as two boys laugh. What, what, what's going on there? I mean, do they both, do they think that each, each's endeavors are, are futile and silly? Are they kind of laughing at each other, or are they laughing with each other? I don't think they could be laughing with each other simply because because they they don't seem to be um, on board with each other's activities. But maybe they're more aware of a kind of repartee than, than we've noted prior. So mm -hmm. maybe rather than simply saying they're really not understanding each other, maybe they are. But there's it's like it's like two boys fighting, right? And, and then the fight's over and they just laugh and go their own ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's true that the, um, we've had a couple other mentions of laughing in this section. And one of the place, uh, places where the holy man laughs, and I guess Zarathustra might not, is when he shifts grounds, as you remarked earlier, and changes from the, uh, the presupposition that um, he is someone who lacks to the presupposition that he is someone who can give gifts. Right, so maybe the laughter, his laughter in that case, would be an indication that Zarathustra won that round. Yes. And let me try a different, different uh, tack. Um, the other thing I, I notice is the comparison with boys um, is connected with um, the remark earlier that Zarathustra has become a child. Right, so the the saint has noticed that um, even though Zarathustra has is becoming heavier by coming down into the mountains. He's also become younger somehow. Yes. Um, so, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, I, I see now, um, they both become younger, right? So the yeah. sparring, the sparring, which I take to be sort of 
both serious but playful, um, Zarathustra gets the old man to laugh, this hermit, in the way you indicated, Jeff, that he that, that the the hermit or the saint realizes that they're in this this uh sparring and that he lost that round, but he's having fun. And and then we're told, thus they separated the old one and the man laughing as two boys, so it indicates the sparring seems to have made the old man young again. But then when Zarathustra leaves and was alone, we're told again that the saint is old. So it was like a, mm-hmm. a moment of rejuvenation via fighting, which of course is very Nietzsche and that, that, that strife or opposition of a certain kind is regenerative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then Zarathustra has to acknowledge to himself though, that the rejuvenation is on a false ground or is local or temporary because there's this uh, insight that the saint has not yet had. Yeah. It reminds me of, um, yeah, it looks like the, the 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 rejuvenation or the vitality that the saint gate gains is borrowed. Right, he's younger in the presence of Zarathustra, but dependent. It's it's not generated from himself. Cool. Well, guys, we're at like fifty minutes right now. <laughs> Well, we probably should stop here. We got through the so first we, two. Yeah, yeah we should yeah. probably stop. Um, even though I'm dying to find out what happens after God dies. Um, but yeah, I guess we'll stop here and we'll pick it up uh, in the next pod. So thank you, listeners, for tuning in. We're very happy to be back. Thank you, Lise. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, thank you, Brian uh, and Lise. For all of your Thanks, insights. Yeah, it's good to, good to be back with um, you guys. Yeah, talking with yeah, you guys. Yeah. It's it's especially it's especially good to be back for me when all I have to do is turn the mics on and uh, and and read. That's, <laughs> that's that's very 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 comforting when you're back um, with you guys to let you do the heavy lifting. So. <laughs> Thanks for all your insights. And uh, yeah, we'll pick up with uh, part three of the prologue uh, in our next pod, which we'll be recording in a couple weeks. And uh, thanks again, listeners, and check us out at Thank you. See you all soon. Bye bye. Thanks. All right.